Hey, hey, if you enjoy this podcast, you may also enjoy The Writer's Co-op, hosted by Wudan Yan and Jenny Gritters. The Writer's Co-op focuses on the business side of running a freelance writing career and concurrently building a life you want. Wudan and Jenny are candid about talking about freelance pay, contracts, saying no to work, and more. This season, they're interviewing freelance writers on how they make it work. Guests so far have included Maya Kozloff, Aurora Almondral, Daniela Zaltzman, and Matt Villano. Hey, listen wherever you podcast, man. You dig? Good. Because I think it's important that you recognize that it's not, that readers recognize that it's not my book, really. It's not the publisher's book, really. It's the readers and the writers' book. Hey, it's CNF, the creative nonfiction podcast, the show where I speak to badass people about the art and craft of telling true stories. I'm Brendan O'Mara. Hey, hey, how's it going, man? Always good to have my best friend Glenn Stout on the show. He's here to riff on the final edition of Best American Sports Writing, the 30th. It is published by Best American Paper. Guest editor is the iconic basketball writer, Jackie McMullen. I'm working out a time to have her on in the next week to talk about the the pieces in the edition and just her approach to the, the whole thing and what it means to be guest editing the final edition. I was hoping to have her on and patch Glenn and Jackie together, but it didn't happen. Podcast mechanics being what they are. Before we get to Glenn, I want to thank you for listening. And not just some flippant thank you, like a heartfelt thank you. I mean that. And being part of this jam band, you know, thanks for being a part. Thanks for picking up an axe and just, you know, stepping on that pedal and hitting some chords, man. Who's keeping the beat? Hank? Nope, he's sleeping. Keep the conversation going on social media at CNF Pod and consider leaving a kind review on Apple Podcasts, like this one from Lori, titled Inspiring Podcast for CNF Writers and Readers. I've listened to almost every episode and I often come away with something I can use in my own work. The only downside is that my to read list is exploding since I want to devour so many of the books and essays discussed here. Thank you, Lori. Love it. Love it. Head over to brendanomero.com hey, hey, for show notes and to subscribe for the monthly newsletter, reading recommendations and articles, and an exclusive invite to the CNF and monthly happy hour. We just had our December one the other day. Nice little gang, and we talked about struggle. Good stuff. Good stuff, man. Hope you have a chance to listen to issue one of the CNF and Audio Mag, the inaugural one, themed isolation. I think it's been received pretty well. It's pretty rad. It's free for all, issue one is, but subsequent issues will be exclusive to the Patreon community. Patreon.com slash CNFpod. Check it out. All right, so Glenn is here to talk about best American sports writing. Mainly writing. I mean, we're not, we're not, we're not talking infield fly rule here. We're talking about writing. Sports writing, two words, and we talk about a bunch of stuff regarding the final edition, but don't expect the eulogy. 
Lots of great juice here. He's also got a new book coming out in March, Tiger Girl and the Candy Kid, America's Original Gangster Couple. You can pre-order your copy now. Now. Stay tuned to the end of the show for my parting riff. But in the meantime, here's Glenn. Ooh. What I, what I found uh, when I was reading the forward to the to the final edition of Best American Sports Writing, I, I, I like that you started it with, you know, you weren't going to eulogize it. So how did you arrive at just at that as your ethos for the forward of the final edition, that you were not going to lament and eulogize the 30 editions? Well, I thought there would be some expectation that I would. I might at some point, but I thought... You know, let's face it, I'm not particularly pleased that they're ending the series. So I thought, well, I'm going to save a eulogy for when I want to put a eulogy in the book. Not for, um, you know, not for this edition, because that's not going to do any good. Uh, I do have some things to say about sports writing. I do plan on saying them at some point. But I thought it was more important uh, in this edition uh, just to recognize the people that had been in there. I very much wanted to include a an index of the 30 years. And the publisher told me, oh, there's no room for that. So I'm like, fine, I'll just thank every writer that's been in it. Because I think it's important that you recognize that it's not, that readers recognize that it's not my book, really. It's not the publisher's book, really. It's the reader's and the writer's book. Uh, so that's what I tried to do in in my foreword. Uh, you know, I do have things to say about sports writing. I've, you know, been doing this for a long time, and I've seen a lot of changes, and I've seen a lot of things that have happened positively. I've seen a lot of things that have happened not so positively. But it seemed to me that this just wasn't the place to try to do that. I didn't want to grind any axes or uh, be too be too belligerent or... Uh, or anything. I wanted to, to get out of the way a little bit and let the last book speak for itself and also to give Jack to give Jackie room to say what she wanted to say. Of course, yeah. I always love that's one of the things I've I've come to love about the collection too is your forward and then the guest editors essay as well at the beginning. It's all they always play nice together and it's always as much as I love the meat of these pieces that are honored in the in the anthology, it's always great to get the individual taste of the guest author, the guest editor, and you know what is driving you know their taste and their selection. It's a, it's always a great insight into a, a great writer and reporter's mind. Yeah, and I always defer to the guest editor. Uh, yeah, generally speaking, I wait for the guest editor to write their introduction before I do my foreword. Uh, because I don't want to step in their footprint. I don't want to step on their toes. Uh, you know, they're the guest editor. It's sort of like more their book than anybody else's. And then I just try to kind of do a little counterpoint to that and have something a little different in tone that also speaks to, you know, things I care about. If, if there are certain things I, I felt like mentioning that they didn't talk about, I might take the opportunity in the forward to talk about those things. I mean, last year, I kind of, I kind of railed a little bit against uh, some of the things going on in the business, and 
and uh, you know, and and Charl- Charlie Pierce didn't. So you know, there was space for both of those uh, uh, both of those approaches in his introduction and in my forward. Yeah, and with it, this is kind of a, a an odd analogy, but in ev- evolutionary biology, there's always this at the at the root of a branch of uh, of when a species differentiates itself. There's a, you know, it's called like a common ancestor, but it's it's a very mushy, messy watershed of a moment at that time. And then eventually you, you, you split off and you see things. And I feel like for the last 15 to maybe even 20 years, that's what we're seeing. We're seeing that muddy, those muddy waters before something's going to branch. You know, journalism is what it is, but the medium of its delivery is always changing and it has always changed. So I feel like we're just in in that ugly mix where we're going to start to see, well, all right, where are we going to branch out from here? Yeah, and there's nothing, you know, really unique about that. I mean, if you go back, uh, you know, 100, 120 years, you know, you're talking about a time where most medium to large-sized American cities had multiple, multiple papers. I'm not just talking about two. I'm talking about five, six, eight. And then by the Depression, that had changed, and there were three or four in many of these cities. And then as you get into the 60s and the 70s, then often it was down to two. Now, if you think about the incredible shedding of not just journalists, but other people who were employed in newspaper, linotypists, you know, boys on the corner selling the paper, you know, there have been dramatic, drastic changes in American journalism happening at almost every point in our history. It has always adapted. It has always changed. The only thing that you can count on is that it will change. And I sort of think that maybe in the latter part of the last century, we all kind of thought things were never going to change. Um, and and that was naive. That showed kind of a, a lack of knowledge of history. Um, things were going to change. And just as the medium of newspapers changed when you know they had to fire all the linotypists because they could do it, uh, you know, electronically, uh, you know, the nature of things changed and the nature of how it's done changed. You know, I started in this business writing stories out longhand and then typing them on an electric typewriter. That doesn't happen anymore. Um, that's something I had to adapt to. Um, you know, there was no such thing as an online you know, as online publications. One of the great sources for the early editions of the best American sports writing were the newspaper Sunday supplements, the Sunday magazines. Those hardly exist anymore. So, you know, that's the one thing I have seen, even in just the last 30 years, is this turnover constantly of where stories are coming from, how they're being put together, and then not only that, but also, you know, what stories are being done and, and, and how they're being, you know, how they're being written rather than just put together. So, you know, the only thing I can say to anybody about this business is that change is the only constant. It's not always going to be change that's going to include you. Uh, it's change that is going to include somebody else sometimes. Uh, if you're fast on your feet, maybe it will include you, but there have never been any givens. And I, I was speaking to somebody just the other day and we, 
we just talked about how rare it is for somebody outside of the daily newspaper business, and, and even it's probably true in that now, but how rare it is for someone to have a run of more than like 15 or 20 years, uh, really at the top of their game doing really, really good work. Uh, and that was as true 40, 50 years ago as it is now. Uh, it's a business that takes a lot out of you. It's a business that, business that takes a lot. And, you know, it's never really been forever. Uh, and thinking it was going to be forever, you know, that's that's probably the hubris of our age to, to think that, uh, oh, well, we've got it figured out now and it will last forever. And I will be able to do this for 40 years. Well, you'll be able to do something for 40 years, but maybe not this. Now, you know, Best American Sports Writing lasted for 30 years. Uh, but uh, maybe that's the only thing that lasts because previous to Best American Sports Writing was the old Best Sports Story series, which lasted 45 years. So that's 75 years of an annual collection of sports writing that's been published in this country. I do think it will continue beyond this. At every step of the way, the old Best Sports Stories book changed. I think Best American Sports Writing changed over the 30-year run. And whatever follows will be responsive to change. And if it's to continue and be sustained, that's what it has to do. And I think one of the 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 great losses of the the collection will be not only just having a, a treasure chest of this great writing and reporting, it's the notable selections that show where these pieces were published because it it gave you a place of, oh, I didn't realize that N plus one published this kind of stuff. And it gave you 20 different places that, to consider where to place your work in a given year. Like to me, that was some of the big, that was a great hack. And one of the greatest gifts of this collection, oh, where can I pitch stories? Well, that's uh, I'm really gratified to hear that because I, as the series progressed, I paid more and more attention to the notables because I didn't think there was much value, quite frankly, in necessarily putting, oh, these are the stories that I, that, that I put forward that didn't make the book. A Gary Smith didn't need to have a story cited in the notable sports writing. Everybody knew who Gary Smith was. So over time, I kind of, on my own, nobody told me to do it. Nobody told me not to do it. I kind of started to see the notables as a way to highlight lesser-known publications, lesser-known writers, to let people know that somebody's paying attention. And, you know, if you made it in the back of the book, you know, more than anything I was saying, you know, you might end up in the front of the book someday. Uh, with a few, Maybe this year with a different guest editor, you might have made it. Or that story you did with maybe a few changes, maybe expanded or maybe done in a slightly different way, might make the front of the book. It's been extraordinarily gratifying the last probably five years to realize just how important it was for writers even to be mentioned in the back of the book. I almost feel bad because I, I feel like I should, probably should have mentioned twice as many uh, stories in the back of the book as I did uh, uh, as I did in the early years. And I've actually tried to increase that number the last few years because you know, it can make a difference. It can make a difference personally in that you just feel like you have some validation. It can help you keep your job. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it can help you get a job. Uh, it can, you know, somebody slugging it out in a small magazine that's just barely breaking even 
maybe that's one of the things that makes them decide to let's do it another year. Let's be a little more ambitious. Look, somebody's paying attention because, you know, everything is so facile and happens so quickly now. Yeah, everybody pays attention to everything, but only for like a second and a half. At least in the book, it's there in print. You can look at it and it's there forever that says, hey, you did something really good here, either as a publication or uh, or as a writer or even as an editor who had, uh, you know, somebody you worked with uh, have one of their stories just be noticed. Uh, so that's really what I've what I've tried to do. And and, you know, it's if, uh, over time, you know, there are people that like that started out in the notables you know, writing for much smaller publications that are now at much bigger publications and, and, and they're in the front of the book now. And that's hope that's happened, you know, time and time again. The, the gas stations to get fuel in this game are sort of few and far between. And you're, you know, you're on fumes a lot of times before you can get to the next fueling station. So seeing your name in the back of that book is just like, okay, I'm not completely deluded. I could be on the right path. And so it's just so good to see that recognition. It's so important. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, um, anything that helps the larger industry helps all of us, right? Yeah. Uh, that's what I've always thought. And uh, anything that book could do to help the larger industry, uh, you know, the front of the book, hey, it alerts people to the fact that, uh, you know, good writing is not defined by genre. Uh, and I would put the writing in the in the sports writing book up against the writing in any of the other best American collections. Uh, I mean, early on, Tom McGuane was... Uh, uh, one of the guest editors and, you know, Tom is best known for his novels. And he was like, I like this book better than the short story book. There's a lot better writing in here than there is in the short story book. And uh, not to diminish the short story book, but um, you know, it doesn't matter what you write about. Good writing speaks to people. People find good writing and it, the genre really doesn't matter. And, you know, that's why, from the start, you know, I insisted that it be sports writing two words rather than sports writing one word, just to make that a little more expansive, a little more inclusive. And a moment ago, too, you you know, being in the in the back of the book and then depending on the taste and the subjectivity of the guest editor, it could have meant the difference between someone being in the back versus the front. And it's so it's so like key to know that and to have noted that because with someone like a, a Howard Bryant who is such he's so clued into tennis, I don't think it's a mistake or a, a coincidence that say Louisa Thomas who writes a lot about tennis got in the front of the book versus the back of the book. Same with Christopher McDougall about running. There were running stories in the front of the book versus the back of the book just based on that taste. So I think it's also an exercise in subjectivity in that certain things are out of your control. And as, as you said, uh, way back in our first early conversations, all you can control, all you can control is your effort and the rest is, you know, everyone's taste or subjectivity. Right. And I mean, that's the, the great strength of having a, a changing editor every year. Um, you know, it was never my book with my tastes. I mean, in a given year, I would say I would probably have selected anywhere between maybe one half to two thirds of the stories that made the front of the book. But in any given year, that also means that there are probably, you know, anywhere from like 12 to 
six or seven stories that are in the back of the book that I really would have liked to have seen in the front. But had that happened, had the book been constructed that way, well, then it would be the, the it would be a different book. It would be Glenn Stout's favorite stories. Uh, and I never wanted it to be Glenn Stout's favorite stories. I mean, I've told people, people might not believe it, but I've always put forward stories to the guest editor that I don't like, but that I recognize that other people might. Mm. Um, stories that, that uh, for whatever reason, are not something that I would have ever picked for the book. And sometimes they've made the book. And, and that's fine because, you know, my job is not so much a gatekeeper as somebody who was trying to, like, always leave the gate open so somebody could bust through. You know, it's like I went hiking in Ireland, and, you know, you go through all these gates, you got to close them after the walk, you know, so the sheep don't get out. You know, in this book, I leave the gates open. Hopefully it lets other sheep in, you know, <laughs> different sheep into the field. Uh, bad metaphor, but, you know, I think it uh, uh, illustrates something. What were some, you know, maybe memorable exchanges or memorable relationships that you've had with some of the 30 past guest editors? Well, you know, it's funny because they're all different. Some I've had no relationship with whatsoever. Some I never communicated with at all. They, they, that was always up to them. If they wanted my input, I was here to help. If they didn't want my input, that's also fine. So there's some people that I simply never spoke to. There's other people that were um, much more engaged with me. Uh, probably no one more so than uh, David Halberstam, surprisingly enough, in the first edition. He was, uh, you know, very collegial. He always wanted to talk about the stories. That held true in the Best American Sports Writer of the Century book we did. You know, I was fortunate that a, a couple of guest editors are people I knew pretty well. Uh, Bill Littlefield, who, who did the book in the mid-1990s, who had the uh, Only a Game show on NPR. Uh, I knew Bill a little bit. We sat at his kitchen table. Uh, Howard Bryant, I've known for probably 20 years. Uh, you know, we talk regularly. So that was a very comfortable uh, relationship. And we talked about stories. I mean, I remember, I won't say the story, but he called up and said, what do you think about this story? I'm not so sure about it. And, you know, we could have like a 20, 25 minute, minute conversation about that. So, you know, and those were the ones that, you know, were most, most enjoyable for me. You know, Jackie was very good. Jackie kind of at the end of the day, you know, put forward was like, you know, here are, I think she had about 22 stories and she was like, you know, are there, is there any stories that you think I should take a second look at? Because I, I don't have it quite up to 25 yet. And I said, yeah, here's some that I would take a second look at. And a couple of them made the book. I don't know if they were on, uh, on the cusp of making the book anyway or not. Uh, that's not really my role. Um, and the one thing I think that is important is that, you know, I never, not even once said to a guest editor, this story has to be in the book, even though there were times I wanted to, you know, and I, and I almost feel bad that I never do that because there's some really good stories that I wish would have made the book. And, uh, and a couple of times I've said to writers, you know, I got to tell you, if it would have been up to me, your story was, you know, one of the best and didn't, didn't make it, you know, that's just the, the nature of, of how it works, you know? And I, and I don't know if there's a way to, or, or much, many ways to do it much differently. Uh, at the end of the day, 
sort of one person has to decide what best is. And all the contract says is they need to be selected by literary merit. Now, what the hell is literary merit from one person to another? That's a story that knocks me over the head and gives me Satori might fall flat for somebody else. Uh, hopefully, the way it's set up, it's worked for a number of readers for a long time. And based on the number of people who send me pictures of the bookshelf they have with all 30 editions sitting up there, uh, I think uh, for the most part, it succeeded. And in your in your forward, you you know, you say, you know, some some uh, some people that really supported you when, you know, it kept you moving forward on this project, probably in those darker days and the grinds uh, that this game can sometimes uh, impart on us, you know, and you, you mentioned Howard and of course there's, you know, Bryn Jonathan Butler and Kim Cross and a few other people, you know, why were they so important uh, to you? Well, you know, um, for probably the first two decades I did this book, you know, I was just, you know, I'm just doing my thing. I didn't really have a great deal of interaction with very many other writers. I was writing books myself uh, all the time while I was doing this and uh, only had a couple of other people that I knew that, uh, that were doing this thing. But as I got involved editorially with some other projects and started to intersect with some other writers and then finally started attending some, you know, uh, I went to the Mayborn several times and I did some, um, some other, you know, literary festivals and things like that. I actually started to meet more writers and have more interaction with them. That really energized me in a lot of ways. For one, it made me think like, gee, maybe I've actually learned something. Uh, because people came to me asking, asking for my advice. And then I realized, you know, pretty quickly that I was getting as much from them as, as I was giving them. And, uh, and that was a real, a real boost because, you know, you do anything for 20 years, not to mention 30, a certain fatigue starts to set in and uh, just realizing that the book meant a lot, that people were continuing to learn from it, uh, that younger writers in particular and younger writers who probably didn't see writers like them in the book in the early years, um, that even they looked at the book and, and found some inspiration. Uh, you know, I've, the, the experience of having people come up to me and go, I've been reading this book my entire life, uh, or this is the book that made me want to be a writer. You know, I didn't realize that early on that it was having that that kind of impact. But I but I came to realize I came to really value it and uh, and to really value those friendships, because this is hard to be a writer is hard. You know, it sounds good when you're at the bar, but it's a solitary process. And you don't, as you noted earlier, you don't always get a lot a whole lot of feedback, a whole lot of positive feedback. So it's hugely important to have that group of people that tribe of people that you can discuss things with. Now, I don't really discuss selections for the book, or at least in this book, with many other people, but I talk about writing a lot. And, um, you know, and just the nature of being in conversation with writers is you're always alerting each other to, to, did you see this story? Have you heard of this writer? You know, what do you think about this magazine or, or, or this, this website? 
You should really take a look at that. And that just expands, you know, it, it expands your field um, because, you know, it is, you know, even though parts of the industry have shrank, other parts of the industry have expanded. They're also, it's also a little harder to get at, you know, how many websites are there? God, I don't know. Uh, I can, you know, you can find out how many newspapers there are. You can find out how many magazines there are. Uh, you don't know everything that's on the web. So those relationships become uh, more and more important uh, just to keep your own awareness up and keep you on your game so you don't fall into just looking for stories from the same old places over and over and over again. The aggregators uh, that have popped up in the last um, seven or eight years too are hugely important in that way because those are additional sets of eyes scanning all the time it's like you know you you're in the mothership of the enterprise and you're scanning the planet you know and we've got uh, uh other enterprises up there scanning the planet and detecting life forms that uh, you know you might not have come across earlier and i particularly liked how you it was a real poignant grace note that uh at the end of your forward you you know you just say you uh you say you know thanks for being a writer and you list all the writers who have been in the front of the book and uh so in a way, because this is a book for writers and a book for readers, like how important was it for you to just simply thank them for being a writer and taking up the pen? Well, you know, I started doing that sort of by accident um, when I was doing some editorial work several years ago. And, um, you know, I know how hard it is to work on a story or to work on a book. And when I would finish up with someone, you know, I'd kind of let them know we were done. I'd say, thanks for being a writer it just kind of came to me. It's like, yeah, thanks for being a writer. Cause I love doing this. I love the fact that like I get to interact with writers and, and you know, that really fulfills me. And I was surprised that some people were like, no one has ever said that to me before. Thanks for being a writer. You know, people, people give us grief when they don't like what, the, what we do. And they might say, we really like that thing you did, but they never really say we like who you are. <laughs> we like what you do. We like your profession. And I think it's really, it, I realize it's really important to, to recognize that, you know, thanks for being a writer because without writers, none of us are doing anything in this business, you know? Um, and it is hard and, you know, nobody, you know, nobody, you know, pins a medal to your chest when you come out of the basement after working on a book or a story for eight hours. You know, they basically say, you know, how come, how come you didn't hear the phone ring? You know, how come you didn't take the dog out? You know, uh, all that stuff. Uh, I, I mean, I, I told my, my wife and daughter, I think I mentioned in the book, it's like, you know, I'm not always present, right? Because words are in my head. The hard, That hard drive is always going. That's a, that's a very difficult thing to kind of live with. And uh, anyway, I, I just appreciate that there are other people that kind of think it's worthwhile and um, against all odds, because uh, most of the people who want to be writers aren't. But against all odds, I really appreciate the fact that uh, there are some of us that have stuck it out and continue to stick it out, um, no matter how difficult it is. I mean, I've known two people in the last six months who were out of the business and had been out of the business for five or six years and they got jobs. Now, 
How did that happen, particularly at this time? Well, they didn't give up, and they're really writers. Case closed. That, that's what they are. So they didn't stop, even though they weren't being paid. They didn't stop. They continued, and guess what? They're still writers. And uh, as, as we bring the this airliner down, uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, just at least tease out your new book with the um, geez, Tiger Girl and the Candy Kid and uh, pre-ordering is open. So maybe you can give uh, give people a little bit of a tease of what it is and uh, yeah, give them some juice to pre-order this thing. Sure. It's, it's the story of what I argue, the America's first gangster couple. Um, these two young kids, I mean, they were in their early 20s in the middle of the jazz age coming out of uh, World War I, a pandemic, and then a very severe economic depression the country underwent. And, uh, you know, they went for it. There were no other avenues for them, so they decided to become crooks. And, and they were a couple. And it struck me as I was working on the story, and even when I first encountered it, which was some 15 years ago, I, I encountered that story when I was uh, researching and writing the Gertrude Ederle uh Book, young woman in the sea and i'd see these headlines tiger girl and the candy kid who are these people why have i never heard of them and you know for a brief period of time six months they were front page news coast to coast front page of the new york times 40 40 times and one of the things i argue in the book you know they were diamond thieves they were stealing jewels in new york along with some other people and one of the things i argue in the book is is is, is really they set the template for the gun mole, femme fatale, and tough guy gangster that we ended up seeing in the movies in the 1930s and the 1940s. It had to start somewhere, and it pretty much started with these people. I mean, people know Bonnie and Clyde. Bonnie and Clyde were so much less successful, <laughs> were so much less better looking uh, <laughs> than Tiger Girl and the Candy Kid. And if anything... Bonnie and Clyde kind of fell into the inside the template that Tiger Girl and the Candy Kid first created. They weren't imitating the movies. The movies imitated them. Uh, and I think that's, you know, it was just fascinating to me. And the more I got into the story, uh, you know, the more I was sold on it. And it's a, it's just a, it's just a great story, tragic story in a lot of ways, not always particularly pleasant, but, um, you know, you had two people at a time where there was no way to succeed, um, deciding they were going to do whatever it took. And, um, you know, it did not end well, at least for one of them. You know, one of them ended up at the gallows. But it's, uh, it's a story that I think uh, really resonates and really says something about an era. You know, the jazz age was not just what uh, um, F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote about. You know, there was another side to the jazz age, the working class kids coming into the jazz age, seeing the excesses uh, of the era that were available to, to other people, but that weren't available to them. And it's about how they reacted to that. Um, and, and I just love doing it. It's a book I've been working on, researching on and off for almost 15 years. Uh, and one I've, I've long wanted to do, and I'm really thrilled that it's finally coming out. Awesome. Well, I can't. I can't wait to dig into that and unpack that because there's going to be a lot of good juice coming out of that book. So, uh, well, Glenn, as always, thanks so much for hopping on the podcast and talking shop. It's a, always a pleasure. So, thanks for the time. Well, thanks very much, Brendan. I always enjoy talking uh, talking a little writing, 
And thanks for being a writer. Hey, thanks, CN Evers, for listening and making it this far. I don't know how many of you make it this far. It's not a lot, but if you're here, hey, big ups. Thanks to Glenn, big friend of the show. Always great to have him back. He'll be back again in March. Why not? Uh, new book and all. Best American sports writing. Uh, go out and get it. It's always always inspiring reads. I never made the notables. I probably submitted six pieces over the last six to seven years or so. Maybe fewer. Never made it. I uh, I always wanted to be doing the kind of work that would typically get anthologized. Like that that's kind of the that's the juice for me. But uh didn't and uh, don't have the chops as of yet. One day. Maybe. Perhaps. Tiger Girl and the Candy Kid available for pre order. You dig? That's actually, I think, almost more important than buying the book when it comes out. I might start trying to book big authors on their pre-order days. The industry will want to interview them on pub day. Terry Gross. But really, pre-order day is far more important, especially for mid-listers. Anywho, I want to just throw out another thanks to uh, Wudan and Jenny of the Writers Co-op Podcast for the promotional support. Go check them out. They're both like six-figure earners, so they've got some clout. I'm like a four-figure earner, so I'd listen to them if I were you. I'm sorry for getting sick of this, but get used to it. CNFers. Go check out the Patreon page, patreon.com slash CNFpod. Check out the tiers, four, four tiers, and uh, check out the offerings. There's some great value there, great community. And the two issues that I plan on publishing of the audio magazine in 2021 will be exclusive to Patreon members. If you dig what you're hearing, you're going to want to jump on board for that for more exclusive content. Call for Submissions is out for the first 2021 issue. It's themed summer, so essays on summer. Email those with summer in the subject line. Creative Nonfiction Podcast at gmail.com. And we're looking at 2,000 words. It's about a 15 minute read max. And the deadline, going hard deadline, first day of spring, give or take. So we're looking at March 21st, 2021. You dig? How often do I say that? I say that a little too much. I don't care. I like it. I dig it. I was listening to This American Life. And there was this episode about breakups. They were they dumped a lot of their more popular episodes into their podcast feed for their 25th anniversary. Starly Kine, who was a producer back then for This American Life, she was talking to Phil Collins, yeah, that, that Phil Collins, and they were talking about breakup songs. Collins said, what makes a great song is this, a simple song sung simply. A simple song sung simply. If that's not some of the best writing advice you will ever hear, I don't know what is. So often over the years, my writing was trying to be something it wasn't. Yeah, I, I'm a I'm a down and dirty slug, you know. Lift a lift, like lift up a rock out in your yard. That's where you're gonna see me, right? There were times I was seduced by, like, footnotes. You know, probably a 
the the David Foster Wallace phase that every male goes through probably pro tip don't fucking use footnotes they're annoying i find them annoying so if you're going to submit essays to the audio mag not that footnotes footnotes really translate into audio but i'd steer clear of i'd steer clear of footnotes there were times where i would try to sound pretty i'm not pretty you've heard me talk you've seen my face there were times when i would try to sound writerly ugh and i was told very directly don't get all writerly on me. And so I didn't. But in all of this, I somehow arrived at something that I think is me. Found my groove. And it's echoed in what Collins so perfectly said. A simple song, sung simply. Here's the catch. That shit ain't so simple, is it? We're gonna boogie on out, CNFers. Tell a fellow friend we're, we're doing good work here. At least I think we are. And uh, let them know what we're doing. Get them in the garage. Tell them to pick up an instrument. And we're going to jam. So in the meantime, I wish you to stay cool. Stay cool forever. See ya. See ya.